0: The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett substitute Helen Zaltzman, one half of the Answer Me This podcast. It's almost 10 years since The Guardian first coined the term podcast. Yes, you really did hear it here first. And since then, podcasting has been hailed as one of the great successes of the internet, a media distribution platform independent of the broadcasting elites, where any person can pick up a microphone and transmit their message to the world. And podcasting hit another milestone this July, when Apple announced they had received their one billionth iTunes subscription. But problems are emerging. Overall listening has flatlined in the past three years, and very few podcasters have made enough money to sustain what they do. So, will our favourite podcast continue, or is the golden age coming to an end? Today we hear from some of podcasting's leading lights, including Jesse Thorne, Roman Mars, Ben Walker and Francesca Panetta, about making good content, taking podcasts mainstream, and whether anyone can make a living from it. This is a Media Talk special from The Guardian. As Ira Glass might say, stay with us. So first, a bit of history. Since someone invented podcasting around the turn of the century, several people have tried to patent it. Some early adopters made very niche shows, The Web Talk Guys and Craig Crossman's Computer America. In 2004, Ben Hammersley, writing for The Guardian Unlimited, named this emerging medium podcasting. Then a comedian called Ricky Gervais got involved, and it wasn't so much of a niche anymore. People who were slaving away as TV researchers and runners could now jump the queue and become presenters. This is Ollie Mann, my co-presenter on Answer Me This.
1: I was at a stage of my career working in telly where I was working on a show that was not a particularly exciting one. It was a particular day where I was calling up chefs and asking them if they'd wanked in someone's soup and I was like, I've had enough of this. I, can't, I don't want to do this anymore. And I went to Helen's party and I approached her. I said, can I speak to you alone? And I think she thought I might want to murder her.
0: Not so much murder, maybe just a little bit of light peril.
1: But I, I took her to one side and I said, can we do a podcast together? And she, she basically said, what's that?
0: I didn't say that, I just wasn't sufficiently savvy about what a podcast really was to say no.
1: But within a month we'd done a trailer and then that January we we started and the whole thing happened actually, quite organically. It just so happened that her boyfriend, now husband Martin, is a semi-pro musician so he had a decent studio set up at home.
2: Answer me this, what happens if an
1: ant colony doesn't have a queen?
0: For a start, royalty is rarely elected. Mm. It's kind of born that way, and more so with ants, because...
1: Helen and myself have a very precise kind of relationship with each other. Uh, It's kind of more like a brother and sister relationship than you'd usually hear on the radio. See, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's our terminology, Queen. We've taken a concept Mm. that we understand monarchy, royalty, subservience, and put it... Onto ant communities, but actually. She's
0: like a big doll scrounger. Well, she's just. Exactly.
1: And it's a very familiar, intimate, and caustic relationship, which. For whatever reason, you just don't hear very often on the radio in this country.
0: And do you think there's a kind of ant version of Hello magazine tracking all the royals' moves? Yeah,
1: all the minor royals from all the other colonies. Very unusual to have two people who are genuinely best friends having fun with each other and the fact that they're different genders doesn't really come into it and very often Helen's leading the conversation and I'm chipping in.
0: Chance will be a fine thing, he never shuts up. But after nearly seven glorious years of Answer Me This, Ollie now also presents on the actual radio.
1: Although it's an incredible privilege to be broadcasting on even a national radio station, you have to acknowledge whilst you're doing that that a lot of the people listening are completely passive. They happen to be standing in QuickFit while Steve Wright in the afternoon is
3: on. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm the owner of MaximumFun.org, a comedy and culture podcast network, and I'm also the host of a public radio show in the United States called Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. The thing that's really special about podcasting ultimately is that you get to choose to listen to something great rather than having a choice of eight things that you don't really like on your FM radio. And when people get a taste of that, they want more of that. And that's the future of all, all media, certainly. But in podcasting, particularly, where production costs are relatively low, I, I think it's really gonna be a wonderful thing for, for consumers
0: if consumers know where to go to find the things that they're going to like.
3: Presumably they're just going to go to The Guardian, right? Yes. And MaximumFun.org? Yeah.
0: Jesse began in student radio, then moved to public radio, and now hosts several shows, including Bullseye. So what made him get into podcasting in the first place?
3: I think when I started my show, which used to be called The Sound of Young America, in college, my idea was that I would become a public radio host like Ira Glass or or Terry Gross. Um, You know, people that host shows for public radio networks and I just assumed that the way they did that was to make a really good show and then somebody would say, you're doing a great job, here's a show that we'll pay you for. It worked out in a certain sense in that I was chosen when I was in my mid-20s, I think I was 26, a person from one of the big public radio distributors and then I'd say, your show is great, we'd like to distribute it. But what I found immediately afterwards was that there was almost no money in that that and when i say almost no money i don't mean in the sort of from a grand scale businessman's perspective i mean literally at the end of 5 years they were projecting that i would be from this hour long weekly show be making $25,000 a year
0: so as payment for a hobby that is okay but when it's more a profession yeah i mean it's difficult to keep yourself in pocket squares
3: yeah well i mean it's difficult to even find the time to make a a real show mm. you know i mean part of the thing is that At the time, I was working part-time as a receptionist and sort of barely getting by financially. And I was spending all my other time making the show. I was editing it. I was booking it. Everything. I was conducting the interviews. I was doing the interview research. Every element of making a show was on me. And ultimately, I don't think I could have continued to do it without finding some money because it was simply too, too much of my time.
0: So in the US, at least, radio is not the way to make your fortune. In a moment, we'll come to whether podcasting is. But aside from the money, why else are professionals turning to podcasts? The
4: Hackney Podcast. The Thames can hold just so much. A sudden surge tide, and London could be flooded. If you live, work, or travel in London, make sure you know the flood drill. Ask for details now wild
2: hackney this is francesca panetta having your own podcast it, happened. it happened. gives you a platform it gives you an opportunity to experiment creatively editorially it gives you your own space yeah,
0: nice, nice series at the
2: top. to showcase your own work the hackney podcast started out with fairly small ambitions just a place to tinker around, interview local people, uh, feel part of the community. But it very quickly grew as I found it a really good space to experiment with different kinds of treatment of um, storytelling, of sound design. I ended up getting a whole load of volunteers from the area at one stage. We had about 30 who wanted to get involved and the programmes became more and more ambitious.
0: Stratford,
5: Ilford, Aldersbrook, Bromford, Oldford, Leebridge. Redbridge,
0: Redbridge. Clark and Clarkenwell. Well, Shadwell, 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 Aldersbrook, Snaresbrook. Snares, I did a programme Shored, about Shoreditch,
2: water, which uh, won a Sony Award, and um, another one about night buses. So I took these really general themes that I thought would have um, universal appeal.
0: Clarkenwell, Shadwell, Aldersbrook, Oldford, Snaresbrook,
2: Shoreditch, Redbridge, Hoban and Well Street. Leebridge, Redbridge. and it seemed like they did have universal appeal because people from all around the world were listening suddenly i found that i was able to get commissions from the bbc in britain and also internationally
6: hello i'm ben walker i produce richard herring's leicester square theater podcast okay and we are at the Leicester Square Theatre tonight about to do two recordings for Richard Haring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast with Mary Beard and John Lloyd. Have you ever seen a ghost? No. No. <coughs> Disappointing, isn't it? I
4: know you don't believe in it because you've just said so. I did say so. before. Well, you know, you never know. do you? But there must be something it? mysterious that you don't believe in that you might come round to, for example. I'm very open-minded, about. I'd love there to be ghosts. Do you know why things are funny? Um, do you know what yeah. art is? Do I know what art is? Um, Do you know I why think... the seed of the sequoia tree is like absolutely tiny? There's like 40,000 in an ounce or something and you know, it's the biggest tree in the world. Do I don't know why no. that is, no. No, but the thing is, we don't know... Do you know about consciousness? The hard problem, as scientists call it? Do you know what that is? No. I don't know anything. No. i gonna... <laughs> just realised. I'm just saying that that... It's not, I'm not, being, it's not personal, Richard. you know, seems you're a, to be. You're a... Seems to be like, you've gone to someone and go, do you know what stuff Richard doesn't know about? Yeah, make a list of it and I will... Does he know what's in a carrot? He definitely doesn't know that. John. Put that on put that the list, he'll look like a fucking idiot.
6: It's fairly obvious to say that you don't have the same limits on uh, language and taste uh, as you do with a BBC radio programme. And I think in the right hands, that can be a very exciting thing comedically. I think in the wrong hands, it can just be a very lazy thing and a route to very lazy comedy. But you can sort of build a community around the show. I guess that's the main thing. And you can be a lot more sort of in touch with your community and respond to your community seemingly a lot more easily, a lot more fluidly than you can with a BBC radio programme. It's a bit of a Wild West out there. I mean, our very first Richard Harris' Leicester Square Theatre podcast, we had Tim Minchin on. And I think within five minutes, they got into this big conversation about how you might be able to have anal sex with yourself... I can't think of a radio show, even The Moral Maze, where you might be able to get away with that.
4: Hello, I'm Richard Herring, this is my Letter Square Theatre podcast. You're about to listen to the audio version of this show, but you can get the video. It costs a little bit of money,
6: but all that money will go and be plowed back in to making more comedy shows. I think working with Richard Herring, he is he's always got the next project and he's always and he's very much looking to see just where he can push this and so that's quite an interesting journey to go on with him I, I sort of stick around making podcasts for the time being in the hope that somebody will find a way to make them a bit more sustainable I believe there are more sustainable models over in the States but I, but I suspect and I may be wrong on this that you know, a very small percentage, you know, 0.1% of the US population is a much bigger number than 0.1% of the UK population. So maybe that's why they can have a more sustainable model. It's fun just to just to make programmes that people really like and just go straight out there. And trust your own instincts. It's great.
0: That was Ben Walker, producer of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, a.k.a. Rohalastapa. So while it may be fun to have creative freedom, where is the cash going to come from? Here's Ollie Mann again from the world's best and most important podcast, Answer Me This.
1: Is there any money in it is the big question that uh, all of my uh, relatives ask me at weddings. <laughs> and the answer is yes, after years, and only if you're lucky and you have a format that still works. We always felt a little bit uncomfortable about commercials on our show um, because we felt it might slightly undermine our irreverence. And the only affiliate deals we've done are with companies that don't mind us basically taking the piss out of their product a bit or being very honest about the fact that there's a financial deal going on here. You know, we're talking about Love Film or whatever it is because the nice people at Love Film are giving us money by you clicking on their banner. And we're basically saying to the audience, look, we don't care what you think about this product, but give us some money because you love us. And actually, of course, that works really well for the company that are sponsoring us as well, because ultimately they do provide a good product and people, when they click on it, then keep it.
0: Instead, at Answer Me This, most of our money comes from selling old episodes at very reasonable prices on popular audio selling platforms. And of course, you may have noticed a distinct lack of advertising or media talk over the years. Here to explain why is Francesca Panetta, who as well as producing The Hackney Podcast, is the former head of audio at The Guardian and is now
2: in charge of interactive projects. The Guardian has been podcasting since 2006. The first podcast that we started putting out was with Ricky Gervais, but then we started making our own bespoke podcasts, a news podcast, science and and this media podcast actually was one of the first that we started making, we think of ourselves as a media organisation. So when we're thinking of how to cover a topic, we don't th- just think of, of the text or the print items, so like something like the death of Margaret Thatcher. It really would be a full package, like how do we treat the story in sound, in video, in live blog, in Twitter, or if we're going to do something with a big sponsor. We will generally think of a topic that we will work with and think of an offering of material across many genres. So it might be some written pieces, some videos, some podcasts. So, it, you know, we really think of these things quite organically.
0: So to recap, as a podcaster, you can choose to do it for fun or for brand recognition or to make big money from advertising. Or by big money, I mean money. But there is another way of making podcasting pay, crowdfunding. And there's one man who has had more success than most in funding his podcast. In 2012, he raised around $170,000 from his listeners.
5: My name is Roman Mars. I'm the host and creator of 99% Invisible, a radio show and podcast about architecture and design. Without all the beeps, without sonic feedback, all of your modern conveniences would be very hard to use. I mean, try using your telephone without the beeps, and it's really confusing. You're lost immediately. Did I get it? No, I didn't get it. The number's there, but I didn't hear it. You used to get it physically with the rotary.
0: So, Roman, the question that I'm always asked as a podcaster is... Can you make money from podcasting? Now you're this uh, shining beacon of somebody who has made (laughs) money from podcasting. How did you swing that?
5: The most significant thing was I did a Kickstarter campaign for the third season of the show. Mm -hmm. And I never conceived of the show as having seasons. It's just an ongoing effort. But because Kickstarter is sort of organized into uh, projects, I just sort of created, uh, it seems like the third season, and so I did a third season Kickstarter I tried to raise about $40,000 to help me and pay a part-time producer. We ended up raising over four times that amount. Wow. And so that pays for most of it. But from then, you know, like, the advertising and underwriting revenue has gone up too. So, like, that, if those all sell out for the next year, which right now we're pretty fully booked, that'll be about the same amount of money in advertising as well.
0: So the presence of the Kickstarter money encouraged the commercial yeah, money? Yeah,
5: I think there's a there's a thing about... Sort of money begets money, you know, in a weird way. And there's a, there's a sense that a person is seems more likely to give you money on the street if you look like you don't need it desperately, <laughs> versus like someone who desperately does. And so this is the same, like you prove that you can make it. You prove that you can do little. Th- I I think it's completely perverse, but it just seems to be true. People offer you more money once you already have it. So
0: what what was the biggest uh, single donation that you had?
5: $10,000 $10,000
0: $10, $10, from one person well what do, you, what do you do for them give them a lap dance or something <laughs> afterwards
5: <laughs> I would <laughs> <laughs> no I mean uh, 10000 was from a, a company who I did underwriting for so mm. I got like, a cut rate underwriting I went and spoke at their company and I also got a 10000 private donation from a woman named Debbie Mulman who's just, she's just dedicated to design and design thought and education and she, she's the one that I did a side bet where I wanted to get 5,000 backers no matter what they gave. And that if I did get over 5,000, she would give the the show $10,000. That motivated way more than what she gave. So
0: how long would your Kickstarter money, which was about, what, $170,000? Yeah. So how long could that keep you going?
5: I have another job in radio, so it would keep me going a long time. So i pay someone, Myself a little bit out of it, and then I paid reporters and producers, and that's most of it.
0: Did you buy yourself a present to congratulate yourself for smashing this I, Kickstarter I, record?
5: I, I, I bought a suit
0: because people who wear suits then get given money by commercial <laughs> organizations.
5: There was one I was like, I was debating whether or not I get, get the suit. It was during the Kickstarter, and after we hit the first the, the Kickstarter goal in 24 hours, I was like, I'm gonna buy that suit.
0: Now, before other podcasters get too excited, what Roman did is a bit of a one off. He holds the record for the most money ever donated to a journalistic project on Kickstarter and probably will for quite a while hence. Here's Francesca Panetta again.
2: I don't know any podcasts that are totally and utterly funded by punters. I mean, even Roman, he does have a day job. He works as station controller for Remix Radio for PRX. In the States, there is a different relationship with listeners and with programme makers for radio and stations do do call-outs for money every single year. People expect to give money to radio to keep the programmes that they want to listen to financed. But even in
0: the US, you can only expect to be funded by listeners if they really, really love what you're doing. Jesse Thorne of the Maximum Fund Network.
3: Essentially, the way I've made money is by creating this community And then both directly asking for their support voluntarily and you know creating ways for them to enjoy each other's company. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported. If you want to support this program, go to maximumfun.org/slash donate. There are a million reasons why. In a lot of ways, if I am providing podcasts to people over the internet. They are like the local audience of a public radio station in the United States. And public radio in the United States is substantially supported by listener donations. And so I started with donations. And I knew that if I had donations, I would want to have a broader, deeper connection to my audience than could come from one show, especially an interview show, which is sort of impersonal. And so... All of a sudden, I had a podcast network. <laughs> if you sign up at the $100 a month level, every month, one of our Max Fun talent, be it me or Jordan or perhaps Sarah Morgan or perhaps Colin or perhaps Judge John Hodgman, will pick a cultural item to send to your doorstep a, a book, a movie, a DVD, something that they really love and recommend. So it's sort of like joining a book club where all of the stuff just shows up at your door and it's all chosen by your favorite podcasters. It's a really neat thing. Since then, there, there have come to be other things that we do for money that have worked out. We do events. We do a sort of retreat slash conference slash summer camp. I don't think you have summer camp in the UK, do you? We
0: don't, but we're familiar with it from films.
3: Right. So just imagine, uh, not stripes, what's the Meatballs. <laughs> just imagine meatballs. Just imagine mash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine Apocalypse Now, and, uh, where we have comedians and writers, musicians, artists all come together and teach classes and have shows and people pay to come to this. It's a little bit like TED in a funny way. It's like a comedy TED.
0: Meanwhile, in the UK, there's a huge range of great radio content already being made, thanks mostly to the BBC. So listeners have less inclination to part with their cash to support a single homemade series. But there are exceptions. Here's Ben Walker.
6: The Bugle was a great success when it came to donations because it was run by the Times and then um, the Times decided they didn't want to make the Bugle anymore. So they did a big sort of call to arms to their listeners and said, save the Bugle, donate some money. The initial Sunday raise was enough for them to be confident of going for the next year. And I think now there's still a stream coming in. So the Bugle's still being made and that's a great success story.
0: And thanks to the power of nepotism, I can type a number into this telephone balancing unit and speak to the Bugle's Andy Zaltzman himself. Uh, So in uh, 2007, you started doing the Bugle, paid for by the Times newspaper, and you carried on in that vein until the Times newspaper decided no longer to bankroll it. After that, did you think the Bugle had a chance of carrying on without the newspaper to support it financially? Uh, yeah, I was quite optimistic, just because we
4: had decent listener numbers.
0: How many people were listening to Bugle at that point?
4: It's slightly hard to know, because we kept the same feed, so we shouldn't have lost any listeners. And yet, the Times had been telling us we'd been getting sort of 300,000. And then when we went to SoundCloud, it was coming up as 100,000, roughly. So I don't think we lost any listeners, but however they were counting, the numbers uh, changed. So,
0: so someone was um, cooking some books?
4: Uh, Well, I mean, I'm sure that would never happen at News International. Um,
0: Uh, So what happened then? Uh, Because you don't seem to have uh, had to live on the streets since the time's Mr. Bugle. How did you pull it out of that financial hole?
4: Well, we then set up a a voluntary subscription scheme where our listeners would pay if they wanted to pay and not if they couldn't or wouldn't because they... uh, couldn't be bothered, or because they hated the show. Um, yeah. So
0: odd that they would listen to it if they hated it. Yeah, I know.
4: A, a listener is a listener. You know, let's not judge them for it. Uh, so we could keep it free, which makes it easier to attract new listeners, but um, hopefully give us a kind of self-sustaining stability, rather than being um, at the mercy of the whim of a of a single sponsor. Uh,
0: have you turned down uh, sources of money? Other than uh, your listeners' bailouts,
4: uh, well, we had a couple of uh, sort of offers and expressions of interest. How much? We'd rather. How much? Fra- no idea. How much? We'd rather. We'd rather stay. Uh,
0: I heard six figures, Andy. Six figures. I heard six figures uh, before the decimal point. You turned down. <laughs>
4: um,
0: so anxious for you to maintain creative control.
4: Uh, I, I, you know, for a year down the line, having done that, we were then cut adrift again. Then we'd be back to square one, I guess. You know, if we can make the voluntary subscription work, then, like I said, it gives us a lot of long-term stability.
0: Yeah, your listeners will be putting your children through college.
4: <laughs> well, just, well, you could say that, but then you could say the people who pay to see Michael McIntyre's gigs are enabling him to build his, his own personal nuclear deterrent uh, and his rocket to the moon or whatever <laughs> he's doing. So you heard that, it here first. That's the way showbiz works.
0: McIntyre's moon base.
4: Yeah, matter of time.
0: What is it, do you suppose, about your podcast, but also podcasts in general, that inspire people to give you money when technically they don't have to? (laughs) Yeah,
5: not at all. I think it's a great medium for connection. I think people feel really connected to the show. I think that that's something that we've had in public radio, is is they pride themselves on having a tight connection with the audience. But I think podcasts have a beat. I try to create like kind of an intimate show. I have a good sort of I feel like I have this good rapport with the audience and then the reason why the Kickstarter campaign did so well was I think that they were giving me back pay for the two years that I did it without it honestly.
0: I found that as well some people feel guilty about having had that much free entertainment that they'll buy things that we put out even if they don't particularly want them because they feel obligated but this is usually adults it's very rarely Listeners who are under their mid twenties.
5: Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the range of mine was. I, I know that I'm not cannibalizing, con- you know, like uh, givers to public radio in general, like because I had a lot of international backers. So one of the things that happened was I was trying to plan if I was going to do one of these cell phone get ten dollars by texting ninety nine to a certain text number or whatever.
0: Well, like people do charity. Appeals. Exactly,
5: exactly. So I was going to set up something like that, and I had the the backing to do it through PRX, but I put on Twitter you know, how should I raise money? I might do this or I might do a Kickstarter. And the international community said, we can't give if you do a cell phone thing. And so we want you to do a Kickstarter. And ended up a good portion of my my earnings were from, the, like, from people from Europe and, and Australia.
0: And because you'd been doing the show for free already for two years when you launched your campaign, were people angry that you were soliciting money when they'd been used to you just impoverishing yourself by making it?
5: Not at all. If you do a giving campaign correctly, they consider it a gift to them for giving them the opportunity to give to you. It's a weird thing, but I know this as as a consumer of independent media, whether it be bands or books or zines or whatever, there's nothing that makes me feel better than giving money to an artist I enjoy. And so allowing people the opportunity and being bold enough to ask for it Actually, people really appreciate it.
0: Well, if all listeners chipped in, perhaps podcasting could have a great future. But is it here to stay? Will our favourite podcast continue into posterity? Or should I say, podsterity? I shouldn't.
1: My feeling, my instinctive feeling, honestly, even though I'm an evangelist for DIY podcasting, my instinctive feeling is that it's over. It had its blip, it had its moment, and... Now, even the word podcast sounds a bit old-fashioned, with 4G coming into everyone's cars and phones. It's all about a world of digital content, where content's available everywhere, and I think the professional stuff basically will win out in that situation. It was genuinely true in January 2007 that uh, you could record a comedy show in your sitting room and the next day be in the top 50 on iTunes. It was possible. You still had to be good to do that, but it was possible. It's now not really possible. But I think they're always going to be part of that mix now of digital content. And I think the people that are good at it and that have been at it for a while can always get an audience that way.
0: Now, you've been in the podcasting racket pretty much since its birth. So you're kind of like the Shirley Temple of podcasting. But now you're grown up. What what is the what is how, how much of things what do I like
3: to drink during the day
0: <laughs> uh, what, how much have things changed since uh, you started and and how do you see the future going
3: I have seen over the course of the eight years or so that I've been podcasting a very consistent growth curve um or at least a very consistent growth line and um and I think that'll continue I think that the fact that everyone now has a media player, when I say everyone, I mean a growing portion of the first world.
0: Everyone that you're willing to consider a human being.
3: <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, exactly. Let the record state that I was being sarcastic when I said yes, exactly. <laughs> that the fact that smartphones are essentially media players and they're internet connected at all times is a huge boon for podcasting. Um, The only platform that has great podcasting support right now is iPhone. Um, But there are a lot of options um, that are multi-platform like Stitcher, um, Downcast, and so forth that are working really hard to make the interface good, which is something that's always been a problem. It's inconvenient. And I think the next frontier is for that to be sort of seamless, transparent, happens behind the scenes, you don't have to worry about it at all, and also, it works in your car, seamlessly, transparently, and behind the scenes. You don't have to worry about it at all, the way that a radio does. It's a continual question
6: in my head of how to make podcasts pay a little bit, if anything. Working with Richard Herring at the moment, he's got this... Uh, I mean, he gets a big audience down, and they all pay to come in. And his shows generally tick over, and um, you know, I get paid to produce his shows. And he's now doing these... Um, videoing them all as well and people who download and buy those videos it's all going to go into creating ever more ambitious video and audio podcasts so that's very exciting I see sort of several podcasts out there especially those that run weekly have donate buttons and that seems like, I mean I wouldn't be averse to asking people to donate but I think because the shows I do tend to come out in little short series perhaps I'm going to look at Kickstarter or something like Kickstarter as a way to fund another series of Pappy Slash slam Down or Do the Right Thing but you know, I keep saying that, and then we come around to make another load, and then I just put them out there because they're fun, and I want people to hear them. But it'd be Kickstarter might be a model to look at in the future.
5: I would go back to Kickstarter for a project again. Like if I were to do a video series or a book, or like launch other podcasts, or do you know, do something like that—something a little bit different. If you came back for ongoing support every year, I, th- I think you'd wear people out. Mm. I think a little bit of that, like I said before, that the they were giving me back pay. I think they are also giving me, like, here's your shot, kid. Go do it. And we don't want to hear from you again.
2: <laughs> the trick for us at The Guardian is trying to think about the strengths of each of these mediums. So podcasting has got different strengths from something like video to something like an article. For every particular story, we look at the kind of palette of genres that we have and decide to exactly how we're going to tell that story through those options.
0: Do you feel that um, as a show that you can keep it going indefinitely because you put a lot of work in for a lazy yes. guy?
4: Creatively, uh, you know, I guess as long as news keeps happening, there'll always be stuff to talk about. I want this this franchise to last for thousands of years, Helen. <laughs> you know, we'll saw the roman empire crumbling after what a thousand or so you know i don't want that to happen to the bugle no so we'll be hearing
0: important. bugle episode one million yeah
4: henceforth. it's very important that we lay the foundations now yeah um,
0: i mean i will but, be dead but uh, you'll presumably be writing uh in the middle of the well, night before recording several <laughs> chronic puns
4: right. i hope uh, yeah i'm hoping that'll be passed down through the generations and <laughs> yeah, yep. it'll be like the monarchy but more so
0: so many questions, so few definitive answers, but if you want to keep trying to hammer one out, then join us to discuss the matter on the Media Talk blog, which you can find at theguardian.com slash Media Talk. Thanks to all our guests and to Colin Anderson for his American mic-holding capabilities. I'm Helen Zaltzman, the producer, has been Matt Hill. Thank you for listening.